37 Disney Street, which isn't far from you, three Disney fans have watched a film which they will now review. Hello friends and welcome to 37 Disney Street. We're heading just around the riverbend today as we discuss classic number 33, 1995's Pocahontas. I have the most unusual name too. I'm Chris Fletcher. My bark is worse than my bite. I'm Lucy Rain. Hello children. I don't have a quote this week. I'm Hugh Rain. You, I'm disappointed in you. She actually says, this is what we say for hello, and this is what we say for goodbye, so I thought it was nailed on that you'd have a quote there. Mm. Uh, get towards the end of the film, I thought, ooh, I need to keep an eye out for a quote, and then nothing <laughs> nothing materialised, and I thought, that kind of sets me up for my opinion of this film, which uh-huh. is kind of, you know, nothing stands out for me. Nothing materialised. It's forgettable. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've been 37 Disney Street. See you all next week <laughs> for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. I thought you'd have said Wingapo, children. That's what I thought you would have said, because mm. that's, that's how we mm. say hello. This is how we say hello. I could I could have done. Yeah. Maybe it was too obvious. I just obvious. need to turn the page in my book, so... You could just do it quietly. <laughs> I, it's so really hard to do it quietly. <laughs> I, I did a script reading with some people and I said, right, the, the, the script's so difficult, I'm going to record it for us all. I've done it before, I know this goes, but for your benefit, let's do a recording so we can all listen to it and practice it. And the page turning in that was off the charts. And in fact, at one point, I stopped it and I told them all, can you just maybe turn your pages a bit more quietly? <laughs> can I just ask you, Hugh, now that we're, we're yeah. not together every week, do you still put your glass or your can or whatever down really really quietly on the table because i do i certainly do i it's over by the lamp on the, my bedside uh chest of drawers but i i'm very careful to do it in fact i almost started giggling last week because sometimes when chris <laughs> and i put our drinks down very softly it makes us giggle because we can see each other doing it <laughs> so i'm gonna do it now because i've got a can i have to pass Listen my to drink this. over you the microphone like you won't hear so- anything listen you listen Oh, I heard it. I heard it very lightly. Oh, I heard it. Oh. I'm just a disaster. I'm going to, to, to mute it on the audio. So. Collateral noise. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we do some facts and stuff? Because uh, we're talking about yeah. putting glasses down. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Okay, so this was released <laughs> um, 25 years ago last week. Why didn't we do it last week? Timely. Because we're doing them Timely. in order and this happened. It's yeah. It would have been really good if we could have got it released on the 23rd. So it's because we did Maleficent. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why did we do that? Um, Mistress of Evil, not as well. 23rd of June, 1992. This was produced during. It was the brainchild of Mike Gabriel who directed The Rescuers Down Under. And he had the uh, the epiphany, if we'll call it that, during Thanksgiving dinner and pitched it um, 
I haven't written it down and I remember what it was called. Oh, the gong show. You know when they had these pitch meetings with cats yeah. that organised and stuff and they called it the gong show. Mm. So we pitched it during one of those and it was snapped up immediately. Um, Katzenberg had been looking for another straight romantic epic uh, in the hope of um, replicating the Oscar nomination that Beauty and the Beast got. Um, or rather getting the Oscar win, if possible. Um, Peter Schneider, um, who was head of animation, had already considered doing Romeo and Juliet. So when he heard this idea, I believe that um, Mike Gabriel presented them with a picture of Tiger Lily um, and wrote underneath, wrote the word Pocahontas underneath it and said, uh, a Native American princess who's torn between her father and helping the white people. And that's all he wrote. Peter Schneider went, Romeo and Juliet. And it was the <laughs> quickest story turnaround in Disney history. I mean, we've done enough of these now for us to say, cutting room for, floor for 12 years, this person developed it, it was storyboard, and asked for a rewrite. With, yeah. You know, but this was the quickest turnaround from pitch to production to distribution. In Disney I'd, history, I'd like to say, by the way, my favourite story is still um, how how they took Dumbo to him and kept bringing um, another chapter and another chapter every time he'd find it on his desk. That that is mm. my, without a doubt, my favourite story of all this so yeah. far. Yeah, join us next week for where is this <laughs> screenplay going? Yeah, you'd have thought there would um, be more story, really, wouldn't you? To that, <laughs> to, to the actual film, I mean, what, with Dumbo? the way that they approached it. Yeah, with the way that they, yeah. they approached the storytelling. Anyway, sorry, I died for it. Uh, die, what did I do? You died. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is indeed what I am doing. Carry on. Um, Peter Schneider is quoted as saying <clears throat> that he was particularly attracted to the theme of if we don't love to live with each other, then we will destroy each other, which I feel particularly poignant at the moment. Mm-hmm. And also... I've the learned de- nothing. The development, well, that's... The sad truth, isn't it? The development of this uh, took place during the 1992 race riots in Los Angeles, um, which were a a huge thing at the time and very, very similar to the George Floyd um, protests. Um, It's just heartbreaking to think that we're still here, if you know what I mean. Um, But that did inspire a lot of the talent at the Disney company to um, get passionately on board with this particular project at the time. People who perhaps were working on other things, certain story developers and writers um, cited that as part of their inspiration. And I think perhaps, I have a feeling there may be some criticism... Okay, it's not just a feeling. I foresee <laughs> criticism of certain themes in this movie, but it's kind of nice to know that it came from the right place, if misguided yeah. in tone, shall we say. I have a say. quote from, from uh, Mike Gabriel, if you'd like to hear it, that was in um, I would love The Art to. of Pocahontas, which I think is quite apt. Um, what he said was, Ignorance and bigotry are taught. If this song, this movie, makes one child begin to question anyone who teaches hatred and fosters misunderstanding, that will be a wonderful thing. I just well, thought that, that was a really good quote. Is fabulous. Yeah. In my mind, that's that that's what I want to hear filmmakers say. Now you can discuss till you're blue in the face whether he succeeds or not, but the fact that 
that was his intention, I think is noble and, and fab. Anyway, I'm sure we'll get onto themes like this. Um, as the story was developed, this this insistence from Katzenberg that he wanted it to be an Oscar winner, basically. I don't think he ever hid that. That's what his dreams for it. Um, caused them to age up Pocahontas. Uh, so yeah, because became... she, she was 11. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think, like I say, the original picture, uh, he brought in a picture of Tiger Lily from Peter Pan. And if you'd remember, she is a, she's a little girl, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. And his start... Well, okay. I was going to save this for when we actually talked about the story, but I need to tell you now... I watched a documentary a few years ago on the real Pocahontas and then I kind of reread up on it this afternoon so I could remember mm-hmm. and then I stopped because basically there is absolutely no similarity between that story and this, like none. No. Like there's no point saying, oh, it, 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 it goes away from the real story in this respect or that respect. There is no similarity to the point where like Governor Radcliffe didn't arrive in Virginia till 25 years after... Um, John Smith was there and John Smith was 20 years older than Pocahontas was and Pocahontas was a child. And, and it was a nickname as well, it. wasn't it? It wasn't even her name. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also she was the daughter of the chief, but he was polygamous and he used to impregnate women from various other tribes as a mean of control. So she would never have met her father. Mm. She would have been known as a princess. Or just everything, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is zero zero similarity, so we really needn't burden ourselves with that. Pocahontas means playful one. Mm. Yes, or, I also read Little Brass. Or ill-behaved cha- child. Problem child. Mm. Yeah. Little madam. Mm. So, um, yeah, they, they aged, aged up Pocahontas. They focused much more on the central... Um, love aspect. This was partly to make the Romeo and Juliet parallel uh, than was originally intended because it was it was more meant to be about the the two villagers. Um, and they also decided to make the animals mute originally. Now, funnily enough, we learnt this from the now defunct Art of Animation attraction at Disneyland Paris. <laughs> there was originally meant to be a turkey called Red Feather. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, played sidekick. by John Candy. John Candy and the door the door already made him mute, I believe. So John Candy was off the project when John Candy passed away. But when John Candy passed away, they they ditched the character out of a kind of a, res, a respect. They didn't want to carry on with him. I mean, they could have um, just gone also, and looked back at um, the rescuers down under and made that decision um, quite easily, if you ask me. Yeah. But there we go. Mm. <laughs> um. But the the decision to make them mute was kind of trying to edge away from this zaniness. Mm. Now, Tom Sito, who was head of Starry, said, and this is a quote, he said he wanted broader jokes, but the higher-ups wanted it more winsome, more gentle. Some of the folks were so concerned about being politically correct, they didn't want to go cuckoo or wacky. Um, Well, they did. Well... (laughs) Here you have a problem with tone in Disney films because, and we have it for the next few, really. Well, mm. the next two, definitely. In that they want to approach very, very adult, important themes, but they, they don't want to go away from the the frivolity. They want to stick to frivolity yeah. and it yeah. causes problems. I had something to say about that, but we'll get into that in story. Yeah. Um, well, the head of story said it, so, you know, that's not a great... <laughs> 
uh, great, what's the word, endorsement, is it? So both the directors and the starry artists became disillusioned with the management uh, continued effort to interfere with the choices. Um, it came to a head when they decided to have that moment in the end where they put the feather on Percy and the Spanish roof on Miko at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, the management team were saying, well, how would they get them on? They don't have opposable thumbs. He wouldn't be able to fasten a roof. And apparently there was a a big kind of shut down in that you've got to let us do something because they were they were kind of wanting to go for this naturalistic serious um drama and mm-hmm. and at that point I, I think and a who, compromise must have didn't been they made. fixed her necklace as well they yes, had they fixed did. her necklace I, yes <laughs> i don't remember that being mentioned but i mean <laughs> my my so cinderella's dress for crying out loud you know, yeah. we're living in a universe where these things happen. I think this was the big problem between the, the artists and the story writers. There's a talking tree in it. There What's is, the problem? There's definitely a talking tree in it. Once you've got a talking tree, those animals can do whatever they want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, oh well, it's not like she's sort of, well, I suppose she's like an embodiment of the spirituality and, uh, you know, she's not literally a talking tree. She just kind of appears to her that way. But then John sees her. Yeah, you know, I, I take it quite literally. It's Ma- a talking tree. I think they've been uh, munching on the magic mushrooms Maybe. that grow in front of the tree, perhaps. Yeah. Mmm. Slurp. You just stop and have your drink there. Yeah. <laughs> while no one else it. is talking. I needed it. Oh, I tried to do all you guys talking. Didn't happen. Yeah, we're done. Okay. She does this at traffic lights. This is how uh, we know that the traffic lights are about to change. She reaches for a drink. In an attempt at historical accuracy, the Disney company did bring in some Native American consultants um, and people from the uh, Power One tribe. Uh, One in particular, Shirley uh, Custolo-McGowan, was so upset at the eventual historical inaccuracies that she said she wished her name wasn't in the credits. Really? It was too late by this point. Um. But Glenn Glenn Keane, one of the animators, oh, he he did the Little Mermaid and he did Pocahontas in this. He's very well known for his mm-hmm. his women, his lead women. <laughs> is we had a choice between historically accurate or socially responsible, and I think what he was referring to there was, um, well, things like Pocahontas's age difference and and you know all all the different things about the way that. Tribes worked in those days. They knew the the knew their audience was children, the violence, the conditions, mm-hmm. um, and again, when we come to talk about this in a bit, I think that's another good quote to remember. We had a choice between historically accurate or socially responsible, and we can discuss whether they're mutually exclusive. But it, it's something he had to consider. Um, I forgot to mention when I talked about red t- red feather the. Turkey, that Percy was also supposed to speak. That's the little pug that Governor Ratcliffe has. And he was supposed to be voiced by Richard E. Grant. And I, for one, am eternally grateful that that never came to pass. (laughs) I'm not a Richard E. Grant fan. I find him lacklustre at best. (laughs) Um, Mencken and Ashman, as a duo, were originally slated um, for this project after Mm -hmm. finishing Aladdin. Um, but as we know, uh, Ashman passed away 
before the end of before the end of Beauty and the Beast and before the end of Aladdin. He was not there to see these projects through. Um, Tim Rice, who had worked with Mencken, had already committed to The Lion King. Um, and so Stephen Schwartz was brought on to do the lyrics with Alan Mencken. And he is famous for Wicked, Godspell, Godspell. Baker's Wife. Yeah, many, many, mm. many. Some it's a bit it's a bit like um Sondheim in that it is well, he's rub, worked rubbish. <laughs> oh, don't get into that. He's worked independently <laughs> as um as a lyricist, but he's also a composer yeah. in his own right, mm-hmm. isn't he? So but he was he was a lyricist on this. And as with many lyricists, he became um quite involved with the story um and was very keen on strengthening the themes of tolerance and communication. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's everything wow. I've got in my facts. Well, thank you for that, Lucy. And what I think we ought to do now, um, after we've talked about our expectations, is go into the story. We'll talk about the story, then we'll talk about the animation, and then we'll talk about the music, like what we do every week. Does that sound like a plan? That's an excellent idea. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Hugh, your expectations coming into this were, were what exactly? This came out in 95, and I was at high school. I was 14... And it, me and my mates just all took the mick out of it. We thought it was sappy. You know, we, we used to we used to get a, if we could get a chair that either had wheels or we could slide it along the ground, we'd sing just around the river bend and slide around the the, the classroom on chairs. And we, you know, and I just I always just thought it's not for me, and I've never really given it any attention until today. Okay, so I was looking forward to it because. You know, I like to watch these ones that I don't know very well. Mm-hmm. Give them a good go. Mm. Um, I am very, very familiar with this film. I have seen it many times. That's all I really need to say. <laughs> and, Chris, and one of the songs had... was in your top five songs when we did when we did the countdown as well, wasn't it? It was, and yeah. I think if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you listeners, you'll probably be surprised at which one it is. Mm, I think so. Mm. Um, for me, well. In 1995, on the week that this was released, I would have just finished my GCSEs, um, which means I wasn't really getting out of bed at all for for around about <laughs> two months. And I and I sat in bed on a night, uh, well, and during most of the days watching videos of Laurel and Hardy. Um, so I've never seen Pocahontas before. Um, this was my first time. I love time. that you just scratched the top of your <laughs> head when you said Laurel and Hardy. Uh, that was a complete accident as well. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> aware that I was doing it. Uh, yes, I'd never seen it before. I was looking forward to seeing it. had no expectations at all, except that I knew that there was um, uh, some criticism of, of it from a factual accuracy point of view. So I was excited to watch it and see what it was all about, really. Story then. Yeah, should we, should story. We get on with this. I've just, um, I've not like normally. I sort of would like to go through it, but I've just got like little moments that I've picked out. Right, like uh, John Smith set up as a hero in a really cliched way at the start. Do we like that? You know, <laughs> his hair, I... his hair is a character all its own, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But you know, the guy goes overboard, and um, Billy Connolly's like, is lost. Forget about it. But no. He ties a rope around him and he goes in after him. Mm. Heroic. I just... This is this is a personal thing and I'd be interested to see how you two feel. Um, 
what we've said for the last stack of films, and it, it's so strange we keep saying it, is the openings have been immaculate. Mm-hmm. The first 15 minutes of Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, they just go scene, 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 everything's set up, it's fantastic. I feel like this has ended our run in that respect. <laughs> because I, I, I'm, I'm not interested in the I, I quite like that it start. well we'll talk about music later I quite like yeah. the music but I'm not interested in that doc scene everybody seems two dimensional and sappy and I mean that from a characterization point of view mm. not an animation point of view um so what they're doing they're setting up that they're going with hopes and dreams and that he's the perfect hero and and that's it and it it, it just doesn't feel human it feels slapped on um, it, there's no nuance, there's no subtlety to any of that scene. It, it felt like an alternative opening to um, to Little Mermaid to me. Did that whole the whole start of the of the film just felt like this is the stuff we decided not to put in Little Mermaid, so we're just going to show you go straight to the boat appearing through the mist. It, but it, wasn't it better in Little Mermaid though? Was it better in the Little Mermaid? Did yeah. You say? yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, no, that's that's what I'm saying. It feels like yeah. it felt like nothing original. It felt like the the only bit maybe that I quite liked was was going from that sepia tone like painting at the start and the way that it transitioned into the color. I quite liked that. But then, and I know that's animation, but then from that moment on, the birds fly over the top and everything about it just feels mm-hmm. like they're setting the same scene as they were trying to set at the beginning of The Little Mermaid, but they couldn't do it the same way because it had already been done before. It mm. it, it was yeah. a bit of a... I wasn't really bothered. I, I found similarities there, but uh, I was also wondering whether that was the best way to start the film there. Well, because... Do, do we need to see that? Because a, a couple of minutes later, the, the next beginning, when, when we see... Pocahontas and and all that bit I thought was was quite nice and I I thought the vis- visually again we'll talk in a minute I thought it was visually stunning I think the music was, came into it really really great and you got to know these characters straight away in a very similar kind of way I guess as the other bit but it, it was a bit more interesting yeah I I think that well I put my cards on the table now I decided this afternoon that Pocahontas is my favourite Disney princess. I think, well, first of all, I think she's the most beautiful and striking and appealing. I know there's been criticism of her being over-sexualised. But, I mean, all these these princesses up to this point were meant to be beautiful in one way or another. I just think she's a 90s beautiful as opposed to other. Um, I also think her... The the motivation behind her character, her her actions. I think she's a very very good role model. I just yeah. I really like Pocahontas as a person. It is such a Disney trope, though. She's mm. um, you know that they're talking in the village, and someone says, "Where's Pocahontas?" And she's off somewhere dreaming. Very Disney. <laughs> it's that. Maria von you know, Trapp. Like, <laughs> it's Ariel not being at the concert. Yeah, it is, but it's uh you see, these tropes are tropes for reasons. Those are the characters that we as audiences are most appealing to. You could literally sit here and name me 50 such characters. Well, just, but they're all great in their own way. We're you back know. in with these flipping sidekicks as, again as well. Though. My God, <sighs> God. They, there's a lot of them. And and they're just not... Oh, but So, first Chris. off, there's, there's the pug. Completely mm. utterly pointless. Looks out of place. Now, apparently, factually accurate because I looked at this. I was reading about this the other day. Um, 
that it's likely they would have had pugs at that time and that might be what dog they would take with them fine fair enough they don't need all that interplay with the with the raccoon and the and the pug all the way through it's annoying but not the most annoying sidekick because the most annoying sidekick is his human sidekick whatever his name is because what the hell place in this film does he have Wiggins completely and utterly terrible terrible character pointless Mm -hmm. not necessary drawn differently drawn in in an old style Disney way that doesn't fit with with (laughs) what they're trying to do in in terms of realism with the characters in this just bad really really bad I think his point being in the film was exposition because it means that Ratcliffe had someone to talk to so he could say his evil plans out loud. Yeah, I think that's You know what true. I mean? Because he couldn't do it to if, the dog because... No, they hadn't, because we've already yeah. established, yeah, they don't talk. Um, he was... Both Wiggins and Governor Ratcliffe were vo- voiced by Ogden... Oh, I got it down. David Ogden Gibbs, is it? Who did... Mm-hmm. Um, no, Ogden Steers. Sorry. Who did... Um, Cogsworth. John Gordon Sinclair. I, I found the, uh, well, I called it the constant, uh, I'm sorry, there's, there's no nice way of saying this, the constant dicking around of Flit and, and Miko. It was mm-hmm. annoying. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like they couldn't trust us not to lose attention for 30 seconds. There's a bit where Paul Connors is talking to her dad and they just keep cutting to these creatures being hilarious. And it's tiring. Not, not even for, for 30 seconds could they just leave us to, uh, you know, have a, a conversation. Even when they was, he was talking about the gold and saying, you know, I oh, haven't found any gold yet and blah, blah, blah. They were having his conversation, uh, which he was having to himself, but he was off camera, so to speak, whilst the dog and the raccoon were fighting over bones on a carousel. What was that mm. about? What on earth was that about? That's when you feel this 90s Eisner thing of selling merchandise and thinking what they can put in the parks and it's it feels quite obvious you know what i mean a pug and a raccoon but we can make good beanie toys out of those but the raccoon would have been all right on its own there was just yeah. the, the, there was no need for all all the rest of it and the interplay and the, i mean I, I guess they were trying to bring that parallel of, of of trying to bring two different groups of people together with with a raccoon and a dog as well, which you know the bit you said earlier on about when when they're together at the end and the and they're dressed as each other effectively and everything, mm. I guess they were trying to show that parallel through that and because because that's the atten- that's the level of attention that kids are going to have. Is that is that mm. what, is that what it was? This is too <laughs> serious for kids, so we need to put some dicking about into it to to keep them know, entertained. What I was trying to think all the way through is. And again, I, I was I was looking at it um, very much to do with the sort of cultural appropriation kind of thing, is how could they have done it better? And my, my honest answer is, I don't really think they could. Now, I'm not saying they did it well. I just think if they hadn't had the sidekicks, this would have felt incredibly dry. Well... Incre- and incredibly dull. Maybe, if they had but... more of the sidekicks, it would have seemed trivial. You know, if they had voiced them and stuff, it would have seemed too zany, and that wouldn't have been sensitive to the subject matter. If they'd been more historically accurate, um, it it wouldn't have played well with children. It would have sort of offended and upset a lot of people. They also would have had to deal with the age-old argument of who did what to who, and I don't think it's really Disney's place to be you know, treading on that yeah, argument. Yeah. I just think the whole film, in my opinion, 
should never have been made. Mm. I know that sounds awful. I just, I don't, I like it. I really do like this film. But I just don't think the balance was ever there. There was nothing they could have done one way or another to make this acceptable. Do you know what? I, I would have liked to have seen more interplay between Pocahontas and uh, her her friend, whatever her name was. Because when they first introduced yes. those two and, and they ended up underneath the boat and they were like chatting to each other, it was lovely. And I just thought that is that is a relationship that they could have played on and had that that could have added some of that light relief into it just just between the fact that they're friends and how mm. they kind of play things out but they had a couple of scenes with her and that was it and it, it yeah it just doesn't work and i um, thought that that was the most believable relationship in the whole thing as well i mean yeah. the, the lack of personality in the rest of the the native americans i think this is something that people have picked up on has been Mm. borderline offensive the way that they talk how wooden they are it's just they're not human it's like deifying them almost now, interesting um, that you should say think, that interesting yeah. you should say that because um uh, the person that everybody hates Stephen Sondheim as, as you were saying before Hugh I drew a lot of parallels between this and the musical Pacific Overtures which is about America um opening up Japan and the the way in which the the acting is portrayed by the people in the Japanese roles tends to be very, very stunted and wooden, which is what it felt like it was with with the um, with the Indian characters in this. So, I I saw an awful lot of of similarities in in the kind of approach and tone of it because it definitely avoided the difficult bits. I mean, there's a couple of pretty horrific scenes in Pacific Overtures where they do tackle what they should be you know what what needs to be said and mm. what needs to be done I think I think they didn't do that here and I think I think there's a reason they didn't do it I think you know they're making films for kids and also they decided they wanted a Romeo and Juliet well it's not a Romeo and Juliet story is it but that's what no. they wanted they wanted a love story so that's what they kind of focused on and and that's I don't know that's fair enough I'm, I'm going off on one of my uh, stream of consciousness things again <laughs> should, I've, I've got a thing here do you know what I've never said to someone? Oh, a dream? Tell me about it. Tell me all about it. But you're I... not a mystical tree. People you. do, though. And, and... <laughs> it's like the most boring thing is when someone starts telling you that. I've mentioned this before on the show. But <laughs> so, so when she said that, I went, oof. There's a lot of things that they gloss over in this film. Um, and I think that kind of, that, that level of spiritualism is one of those things that basically thought if we if we put in some allusion to you know the the importance of dreams and stuff into this then that will be enough for us to to be able to manage it but uh, they they're kind of glossing over the culture and and um but in a way that they're trying to allude to it and make it all right for kids and that that in itself kind of adds a bit of magical sort of feel to it which is always good in a fairy story isn't it I suppose yeah uh, I can't remember where the quote comes from um, it's somebody saying about themselves that they want their epitaph to be um, they were neither as good nor as bad as they were made out to be and I think um, what's happened in sort of the film industry over 80 years is that the Indians were all the, always the baddies and the savages and yeah. the heathens, and then you get to the 90s and it's almost like... Because you get Dancers with Wolves and Last yeah, of the yeah. Mohicans as well. It's like they're atoning for it by making them the absolute opposite, by making them mystical 
godly mm. saints. And um, this, you get all the way up to Disney doing it. And I think if anybody's going to do that in a saccharine manner, it's going to be Disney um, without any self-awareness. Now, I have to go back when we were doing the history of it to how I genuinely, the more I read, the more I realised the people who made it were genuinely well-meaning. We can't stop that for a oh, second. Oh, yeah. I don't think there was, if anything, they were ignorant, but that's it. There's, there's a really good byproduct of all of this as well, um, I have to say, which is that I sat down to watch this with Lucas today and um, he asked what, what was happening, why are they going there, why are those people there and everything. So we started talking about colonialism, we started talking about, you know, um, the British Empire. We, we started talking about all this kind of stuff and we're saying, you know, this is what this is what empires used to do. They go and they find somewhere and they basically say, this is ours now, we're putting a flag in the ground get rid of everybody that doesn't doesn't toe the line and do what we want them to do. This is our land. And and uh, Lucas said, but I don't want us to do that. And I said, well, we don't do that anymore. And Laura said, mm. Lucas, if that's how you feel about this, then, then we're doing something right. <laughs> and, mm. and I think the fact that we can have a conversation about that, particularly at the moment when a lot of discussion in the UK is about, you know, um, you know, the, with everything that's gone on over the last few weeks, um, it, the the topic of conversation has got around to well actually what we need to be doing is educating about our our past and our history and understanding that people who have done great things have also done not so great things and understanding that that you know our past is not all this this great fantastic um story of the wonderful times that we went to mm. india and and uh, you know spent time in kenya and 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 tea plantations and blah 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 this is you know th- mm. there's a lot more to it than that and the the reason that we profile people or that we see people in the way that we that we we see people now um is because of the way that history has portrayed those people so what you said about indians before being seen as as the evil characters in in westerns and the savages which is what they really try and put across in this film as well to be fair is these people Mm. are savages but you're seeing throughout through the film that 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 isn't the case at all and when you start to think about the fact that well actually these people turned up in this place where people were happily living um Mm. you know and had their communities and had their way of living and basically said yeah you can't do that anymore it's our way or, or no way. I think the white people in this film have been over-sanitised too. Oh, I agree. You I know, completely agree. At the same, at the same time, Disney want, didn't want to start an argument where the, the colonial white people were the bullies because at the end of the day, it is the all of America is based on colonial white culture, mm-hmm. be it French, French, German or British, you know. Um, so it it just it just doesn't commit. But you're absolutely right in that for the age group it's aimed at, it starts a conversation. And I've been like you, I've been wondering how do I start that conversation with Bonnie? Um, we're in lockdown at the moment, so we don't have opportunities to go out and see what's happening in the world. And maybe movies like this, far from perfect. But it, it makes them ask that question. Genuinely, and I think that's I, I've been genuinous. looking for a way to talk to Lucas about this, and mm. and watching this film today has really really helped me. So in that sense, it's as I say, it's a byproduct, but it, it's a good thing. Do you know what, Chris? You've just put my story score up <laughs> saying that. I don't think it affects I, what I think of the story, but <laughs> I think I've been pretty frowny about this story. But yeah, do you know the, the second Pocahontas film? 
Yes. Um, Something about London. Yeah, it feels like... I wonder if that was just sort of added to... um, Kind of just... To, to make an attempt at getting close, bring some of the history to, in to the, to the truth, yeah, because yeah. Yeah. she does travel back to London yeah. and she does act as a go between between. And she meets the person that she was forced to marry and and everything as well. The the John Rolf, Rolf yeah, mm. yeah, maybe, yeah. But then, but the decision at the end, I kind of don't buy that either. Is uh, because, because it's not true because it's all made up. Is this sort of um, you know you stay here. Uh, no, you come with me. No, I can't. I have to stay here. Why don't you stay here? I can't. I'll die. You know. Mm. It's like, well, go on, get well, just come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was like a just come back. <laughs> a month journey, and it costs the equivalent of millions of pounds yes. to raise the money. But for you the... can't put a price on love. True. <laughs> um, so if the you know if they're going to be economical with the truth, just have him come back. I've got a little fact, if you don't mind me uh, lightening the tone slightly. Um, I have to find this thing now. Russell Means played Oh, I thought you were Russell Means, <laughs> the noise you make when you're looking through your notes. Russell Means <laughs> plays um, the chief. Do you know who he is? Did you recognise his voice? The, no. Oh. We've been watching... Uh, he's, uh, he'll be from Curb Enthusiasm, I yes. guess, won't he? Yeah. Um, running, chief Running Bear, is it? Uh, Wandering Bear. Wandering Bear. Uh-huh. Do you know, um, I didn't know that was him, but I did have a thought as we were watching it, what if it's him? But then I thought, does that, you know, is that me going, or oh, there's one uh, Native American actor? <laughs> yeah. But uh, it turns out in this case, um, it was the same guy. <laughs> um, well, well, and he was, he was initially, it, I found him interesting because he was initially a um, an advocate, a an activist, um, for Native American rights, mm. and he worked on a lot of um, reservations, etc. Mm. Uh, working with Native Americans, and he came very late in life to acting, and it was it was a natural progression because he'd become quite famous as an activist. That he was sort of invited into these roles, and he thought he would use it to forward forward his a- activism. Mm. Okay. I don't know where Curb Your Enthusiasm mm. fits into that, but certainly in, at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> 95 oh, that's mm. yeah. well, while we're on um, performers um, where's Welker do you know where Welker is where's Welker <laughs> um, well, I know because I looked at it on Wikipedia not deliberately yeah, but I, I'm like I've ruined the game I accidentally saw it but uh, my guess would have been um, my guess would have been Percy but I know now that that's not right no it's Did Flit so. yeah. yes it mm-hmm. is, yes, you're right. Um, and it's very easy to have spotted them if you've been on IMDb because it's a very, very short cast list on there. Sometimes I listen back to this show and uh, I don't know that you've added a new um, jingle or whatever. <laughs> so when I heard the Where's Welker thing last week, uh, it did make me smile. Well, that, I'm not necessarily settled on the Moana version. I might see if I can find a different one. It feels a little bit too passive at the moment. I think I need something a bit more staccato. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it. We'll see. Maybe not this week. Maybe another week. Um, can Let's I just call it Jingle Talk? <laughs> jingle Talk. <laughs> um, whilst we're on performers, Jingle Tells. <laughs> um, Mel Gibson's doing doing a Kevin Costner, mm. isn't he? And I find I, oh, I, I, it was never yeah. forgivable in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and it ain't forgivable now. It it really no. frustrates me. 
when you've got someone who's British being American, but he's Australian and he's being American, but he should have a British accent. So it, it, uh, <laughs> well, look, I mean, yeah. the first, not the first, because you've got like Ava Gabar and people like that doing voices, but the first time it became like this this big, big thing to have an A-list celebrity was Robin Williams being the genie. Mm. And it's like that opened the floodgates that if you wanted um, to make a hit animated movie, you attach loads of stars' names to it. And I, I remember having a massive beef about this when I when I was like 16 at the time, just being yeah. so annoyed. Uh, I was younger than that on this. It was when Hunchback came out, I was annoyed about it. Um, because if they don't add something to the movie, like Robin Williams added something. Yes, When we did. get to Mulan, Eddie Murphy adds something because they've got the, they've got personality there that comes through mm. the voice. But these leading men and these leading mm. women... Yeah, a hordes of Mel Gibson fans rushing out to see this. Mel Gibson's <laughs> in it. I love Mel Gibson. And when it well, comes it was to back point, when he was acceptable. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, he's got... I don't think they'd be attaching him to this kind of movie anymore. But when it when it comes to a leading man's voice and they don't have the accent naturally, what's the point in getting someone to put the accent on? I mm. just don't get it. I can understand if it's a more character part. Sorry, that was an accidental belding there. <laughs> a more character part. Or it is someone that specialises in character acting the way... Um, who is it? Dan Castelletta does a. Castellanetta. Castellanetta. And who's the other guy who's in. Um... <laughs> you can have that one. We should have just used the one that you did by accident then. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, you know, the, these voice artists yeah, yeah. who are. They are voice artists. It's different when it's them. But just getting this hunk, we can't see his face. Jim Cumming yeah. uh, plays the chief as well, doesn't he? Uh, Jim Cumming's in it. Yeah, I can't singing. remember. Singing. Uh, he, he must play the singing. He does the singing the version. Singing for the chief. Also, I will give him kudos because Mel Gibson does his own singing in Mine, Mine, Mine. Yes. But he struggled with the last few bars, so they had to get somebody else to do the last few bars. Oh. <laughs> Bless him. So he wasn't oh. even employed for that reason, was he, for his singing? I just don't get why he's there. Make him go away. Mm. Are we coming on to animation? Let's. Yeah. Yeah. Because my first impression was that it didn't look like a Disney film. Whatever that means. I know, like, it's a strange thing to say because every Disney film we've watched has had its own flavour, really, hasn't mm. it? Its own, its own look. But it just felt... I don't know, something about the line work and the dull colour. It felt like Anastasia or something. <laughs> Are you talking I, at the very beginning in London? All of it. Just, all of all it. it. Okay, interesting. All of it. There, there didn't seem to be... It, it felt very enclosed all the time. It was all these tall trees and it just felt... It, it See, a very oppressive, dingy quality. I thought it was stunning. Um, I thought the backgrounds mm. were, were reminiscent to me of, of um, Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Um, I thought that towards the end. Cause, uh, well, I thought, I thought that from the very beginning. and, and Lots of vertical so, trees. Yeah, yeah. But, then that, but, that, but I think that was more down to just for the fact that it was the kind of trees they were... The the because then when I looked again at the because I thought that and then I looked again at the backgrounds and I thought the actual execution 
is uh, it's not as graphic as Sleeping Beauty. It's, it's, not, it's as, not. It's not. But I thought I I thought it was great. Um, I also I liked the character animation in that it was different, but they were going for they were going more for realism and less for. Um, like stereotyping, which is the obviously got a, a history of doing. So we've not got the big eyes. We've got much more lifelike, real-looking people. And I thought it's a different way of doing it, but I thought it worked really, really well. Um, mm. And some of the bits, I just, I, I, I thought that the way the bits, little bits of CGI and stuff into played worked well. Like the the yeah with the canoe and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The willow tree was a bit weird. Um, in a couple of the shots, it really kind of. Because the whole the whole thing it must have been CGI, wasn't it? Because because when her face moved, everything around it kind of moved with it. It was yeah. it was very kind of almost stretched, and and at times it didn't quite work well for me. But on the whole, I just I thought it was brilliant. The bit the bit in um, just around the riverbend when when she's uh, there's a bit when there's lo- like a break of waves and it's almost watercolor like like the mm. the monster bits of of Pinocchio, which didn't really fit with the rest of it but it, it looked really really impressive and I loved the way that the leaves and stuff kind of kept playing in and, and coming across everything um, and adding a bit of colour to something which you're right was quite mm. quite dirty in colour a lot of the time but you know at the start when we see uh, the villagers going about the business um, in, in the title sequence something bugged mm. me right uh, you see some some canoes going along and then there are some people in the foreground fishing right and the way the camera's moving, the one of the guys he sticks he sticks his his rod into the the water to harpoon a fish. Yeah. And uh, the the way it's all framed and the tiny boats in the background, his stick is way too close to the boats in the background. And it like I, I don't know if you remember it, Lucy. I, I, I wondered why I, I, I rewound it. I thought oh, no, I need to see that again. And I thought the perspective on that was all wrong. And this is in your title sequence, right? And then I've got another little, little niggle, and that's um, the Union Jack. Now he has the uh, the diagonal reds missing mm. because it would have done at the time, uh, but you see it three times, and one of the times it's got the diagonal reds in it. Ooh. So they've been inconsistent with the Union Jack. <laughs> it's when um, Radcliffe plants it, first plants it in the ground. Mm. It's a prop. It's you know it's the Union Jack as it is today, and it goes back and it's not again. Sloppy. I did not notice that. Uh, Interesting. I did. It's the kind of thing I notice. Yeah. But um, I remember seeing uh, the depiction of Pocahontas again when I was at school, and it seemed to be a big deal at the time. I remember people talking about it on TV. You know how how she looked different. She wasn't a your classic princess. She was more angular and stylized, and it was it, it was like a it was a big deal at the time. I think. Mm. See, as it opened for me, I was looking at this. And in fact, I turned to Laura and I said, "You can really tell that the." The people wanted to be doing this and thought this was because you know we talked about the Lion King the other day. They thought this was going to be the hit, so everyone who could was jumping onto Pocahontas and not onto the Lion King. And I thought, mm. I thought you could tell that personally. I, I, I felt visually it was was very very good. Throughout. I felt a, a big difference between the well. I've already spoken about how much I love Pocahontas and the highlight animation wise for me as it was with Ariel is the way her hair moves mm. and blows across her face you know when the wind keeps coming and playing with her that's amazing but I felt a big difference in quality and appeal between the British and the Native Americans yeah I just I, I thought the British they were lazy 
just lazy caricatures in every sense, in the writing, in the voices, in in everything. I think John Smith, they'd certainly gone for Matinee Idol, but then, I mean, we, we liked that Eric had a little bit more character and flesh about him as a leading man compared to Prince Charming and Prince Philip and so on. Um, you're right back to a, a faultless faultless human here. Um, hmm. No humour, no nothing. Um, and it's really visible in the way he's drawn. So I think the backgrounds, the Native Americans and everything to do with that is it, beautiful and fabulous. But anything at all to do with the British camp... England at the beginning is it feels like a different team of people you know, behind I, it. I I felt like it was deliberate though, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm wildly off, and maybe but but to me, I I always felt like it wasn't a, about them. They they were the you know from a story point of view, they were invading this everything else. So they were they almost weren't what how they looked, what they were like wasn't what mattered. But you're right. When mm. I think about it, you're right. They were quite flat, and and the only the only character who was animated was really in any kind of proper way was was Wiggins, and he was like something straight out of Beauty and the Beast, which nobody else was. Mm. Radcliffe was uh, quite extreme, wasn't he? Like again, the the villains, the most interesting. And he is a great yeah. villain. He's a, a widely forgotten villain. Seen him at DLP. It's a good one. Mm. In the uh, villains. Kukum is the worst, though. His face... Kukum. Kukum, sorry. His face is all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I think the work experience kid was drawing him. He, he's another one. He's, he's, a, he's a funny character in general because, like, they go, oh, you, you're going to marry this guy. And then <laughs> straight from that moment, they they, they put him forward as, as being this, like, you know, he, he's the one who says, right, come on, we're going to go and get him. We're going to go fight these guys and we'll get rid of them like we did everybody else before. Um, and then that's it. <laughs> Apart from that, he gets shot later on. Nothing else really happens with this character at all. Nothing a lot happens in this film, full stop, I think. No, no. <laughs> oh, I, no, I wouldn't say that. I, mean, I wouldn't say that. I mean... I think the themes are big, but what actually happens mm. is very small. Oh, you might be right about that. It's more about theme. Okay, you know, I accept. You know, I, I should have said this in the story, but Lu- Lucas felt quite anxious. A couple of times he said, I'm not sure this is suitable for me. Um, this is all. This is all about war, and I'm a, I'm I'm a bit worried about it. So when when um, Kukum got killed, he was he was like visibly shocked about it. He he was mm-hmm. concerned. Um, but then I think that in itself made the whole piece. Which you know we've completely glossed over the fact she saves John Smith's life, which is actually the entire story. That is the yeah. story. The the story of Pocahontas is that, um, or at least that's the only bit that they've really covered in this film. And um, we didn't even talk mm. about it in story. Uh, but yeah, he he was he was scared by it. He was he was visibly scared by it. It is one of the most violent Disney films I can speak of. Not in violence at the show, because they don't show much except for that fight that you're talking about. Mm. But it's a threat it's a threat of violence. Yeah. And yeah. it's the knowledge that violence is going on. When they come back at the beginning Beautiful music, nice, um, easy river, little canoes. They're getting off and they're talking about the warriors coming mm. back from war and they've just defeated the uh, Nassauomics, is it? I'm really sorry if I butchered that word. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... It, well, 
it just goes right back to what I said about they can't they can't win with the subject no. matter. No. They could never win with it. Um, that's not necessarily about animation. I think we've U-turned <laughs> a bit there, haven't we? Yeah. Do you have you got anything else you want to say on animation? Or should we go on to music? Music. Um, the, the only other thing I would say is I, I like I do like the way it goes from that sepia tone at the start and, and how it goes back to it right at the end of the film as well. I I quite mm-hmm. like those those drawings and that. At, um, at the beginning and the end of the film and I like the way it transitions across there you go that's all I want to say music I love it. <laughs> it. My feelings on the music do not reflect or match my feelings on the film as a whole. I think the music is close to flawless. Um, I love how they've got the old English um, key and and rhythm at the beginning sixteen hundred seven da, 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 they're really good at evoking periods stronger than a hundred men <laughs> and the way that that then goes into the um the the Native American sort of chants which apparently aren't very authentic but to mm. us silly white listeners we it, it really makes it feel exotic and um you know another culture kind of thing yeah and the way that musically that whole opening works out i've already said i don't like it story or animation wise but musically the way it works out is fabulous and then you've got her two power ballads now i wouldn't normally be behind a film with two power ballads personally but they are brilliant songs brilliant songs i do like colors of the wind don't you like riverbend no I think I think we mocked it at school for too long it's just ingrained in me maybe not to yeah it just doesn't feel like it's for me it's and I can't sing it at all but it's when it it has that little coda at the end that little second thought or do you still wait for me dream giver just around the river bend you know when when yeah, the yeah. melody just goes up, that is a, it's a really beautiful end and beautifully sung, beautifully sung. I love those two songs. In fact, um, it, it, there's nothing I can really think that I would say are flaws in the music at all. It is incredibly Schwartz. I, I do think it is very, very Schwartz, mm. um, particularly in that most of the music is there um as exposition is moving the story along you know you said earlier about if they didn't have the sidekick then he wouldn't be able to tell his story well that whole my my mind song that's exactly what it does it's not mm. it's, he's not telling that to the sidekick he's singing it to everybody and and i think they use the music really well in that sense uh, i think the power ballads are brilliant and i also think the way that they interweave the the themes of both of those songs into the score prior to them, I kept thinking, oh, here comes here comes uh, Colors of the Wind, and it wasn't because it just kind of it, it they just hinted at it in the score as it was as as the film was progressing. Musically, I thought overall it was absolutely brilliant. 
Mel Gibson wasn't a great singer, but I admire him for doing it, for giving it a go, you know. Um, I like it when you can hear the actor's voice in the singing. I agree with that. I do agree with that. Mm. As long as it's not um, uh, Russell Crowe in Les <laughs> Miserables. <laughs> Chris, did you watch uh, the end credits? <laughs> yeah, in fact, I, Ollie was getting really excited because I promised him that if he was quiet and behaved himself, we could play um, Mario Kart afterwards. So as soon as right. it went to the titles, he started making noise and noise. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, there is a classic 90s uh, version yeah, of, of one of the songs coming up here. You need to be quiet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, there was a bit at the end and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why is that so familiar? Right. And it was this bit. I hope I've got it in the right place. Listen to this. I know what it is. It's, Red, it's BBC Radio 2, isn't Radio it? Radio 2. I think it's Sunday Morning Love Songs. Yes, it well, is no, Sunday Morning Love Songs, yeah. That is it's, exactly it's what it like, is. It's either that or it's on Elaine Page, which, which would make sense. No, it's it's Steve Elaine. Wright's Sunday, but it's Sunday is, Morning Love it? Songs, definitely. Yeah, that's what, well, that's, that, was, that was my original guess, but then I couldn't find a, um, a, any, any note of it anywhere. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, well, that's on the radio. What the oh heck? my word! I'd, oh, it really tells you about our time of life when all three of us recognise that every, every time that <laughs> comes on. Sunday morning on, love songs. Yeah, every time that comes on on Sunday morning love songs, I think, oh, they're going into a song here. I know this song, but I don't know why I know yeah. this song. And then, it, and then it's a jingle. <laughs> you'll never unhear it now. Every time I hear it, I think, oh, this sounds like one of those songs they have on the end credits of a Disney film. Literally, that's what I think. <laughs> and then today I found out it's because it is. Yeah. Anyway, listeners, oh, we mentioned earlier that one of the songs in this film was in my top five Disney songs of all time. And it's not Round the River Bend and it's not Colours of the Wind. It is Savages. Savages. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that one. Talk about that one in a second. It's mine, mine, mine. Um, and I just, mine. I love. Mine. It's got such a good purpose within the film like you say it's exposition Mm. you know everything that you need to know um about the character about the situation about his his drives his ambitions everything through that thing but i love the way it keeps flipping back and forth between different meanings of the word mine and the way that works rhythmically Mm. and i just think it's so clever both musically and lyrically it's just absolutely fabulous. And then when the key change happens and it goes into Captain John Smith singing the same melody and they've sort of changed the meaning again, I just mm. think it is the epitome of an accomplished musical theatre track. It it really is. If you want to explain to someone, what, how, how do you write musical theatre? Painting by numbers. Well, this is how you do it. Well, we've, we've talked since um, The Little Mermaid about how... These are musicals. They're effectively musicals. Mm. This, for me, the the music in this is far more musical theatre than the ones that have come before it. Um, and, and I loved it for that. And I, I am a, a Stephen Schwartz fan um, on the whole. Mm. Um, and I saw a lot of similarities between this and one of my favourite musicals, The Baker's Wife, which we did at the arts group a number of years ago. Um, uh, in, in the style in which the it is lyrically, but also musically. And... Yeah, I don't know. As I said before, I just I really, really enjoy the music far more than I expected to. I thought I wasn't going to like it. Now, Savages, that was my... 
See, I'm trying to remember in my life which I became first aware of, Pocahontas or Les Miserables. I think it might have been Pocahontas I first, mm. maybe was first more familiar with. But, you know, in um, South Park, the movie, yep. Blame Canada, Blame Canada, tomorrow night, tomorrow night. Now, I know that that's always been, it's kind of a parody of One Day More, isn't it? But to yeah. me... I always hear this uh, that Savages song. You know, where they keep layering it up with the yeah, characters yeah, yeah. and the different <laughs> different sides. And it's yeah, I just totally it's South Park the movie to me. That I didn't see it going that way when it started. I thought, oh, this is a bit lame. But as it built up, I I kind of got it. But it it took a while. That that for mm. me was the the weak point when it comes to music was that song. Um, but as I say, it got better as it went on. It was just when it started, I kind of didn't get it. Mm. Um. See, I'm very familiar with this film. Yeah, yeah. I, I got it. It works. It's, it serves its purpose. Well, I would watch now, it again and just... I would give it another go. So maybe I'll see it better next time. Hugh's doing his little fidgety bottom thing where he's looking at the clock and thinking, you know, heck, this is getting long. No, I realised I didn't delete any uh, um, old stuff off here. So I'm not sure how much space I've got left and the <laughs> battery's running out. Well, should we score and this then? And we've been yeah. about an hour. <laughs> Let, let's go on. Let's give let's it some scores. Do you want to know what other people have given it first? Always. IMDb gave it 6.7. Ooh. A little, a little on the low but, side, uh, but yeah. we've had worse. Now, Rotten Tomatoes, which I think tends to be a little bit harsher, the critics gave it 55%. I would call that lukewarm. And the audience, a little more generous, 64 but really? who cares what they think? What do we think? Story first, then. Who would like to go first? I'll take this. <laughs> um, a part of me was thinking, like, should they have made this? How dare they lie to millions of people? You know what I mean? Mm. Should it have even been made? But then I thought, you know, it gets a bit back because at least poor Contis is... She's a positive role model. And uh, I have heard, you know, I've, I was reading reports that a lot of Native Americans do enjoy watching her in this because she's such a positive uh, role model. Yeah. Um, but I found reading the real accounts of what happened was far more interesting than this. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sidekicks are incessantly annoying. I've given it a four. Ooh. I was going to go straight down the middle with a five because I th- I think it's it's fine. The problem with it is, it is it just went straight down the middle. It didn't want to be one thing. It didn't want to be other. It didn't want to commit to the drama. It didn't want to really tell the nitty gritty story, but it wanted to move you. So it, it just it compromised too much on itself, which makes a five appropriate. Now talking about the fact that you were able to discuss the issue of colonialism and um, race relations with your seven-year-old son as a result of this um, and knowing sort of the background with what they were trying to achieve with the story has really softened me a bit. So I'm going to edge it up to tip the balance to a six. I still don't think I can in all honesty give it any higher, but it's certainly more than halfway for those reasons. So I think I'm very aligned with you, Lucy, um, except that the fact that I could have the conversation with my son doesn't make me think that I should give the story an extra mark. 
um, it's history light at best. And um, that whole thing about uh, getting a balance between realism and, and social responsibility or whatever that you said earlier, um, it rings true. And I just don't, I just don't think they've balanced it well. And if, if, it, if, if people had issues with it from the start, you know, that's quite telling, I think, um, about mm. the approach that they've taken towards this. So uh, I'm going to give it a five. Animation. I really, like I've said, the the background art, the world building, that landscape inspired me. The wind, as small as it is, um, really, I enjoyed um, its use. <laughs> I, enjoyed the wind. I enjoyed the wind. Three stars. Um, <laughs> and I think Pocahontas is just one of the most striking uh, characters ever. However, it wasn't perfect. People's noses would um, change shape mid-scene and um, some some of it was quite dull to look at. So I've given it a seven. Um, yeah, there were a couple of times when, and I don't know if this was just the visuals or if it was the score as well, if I'm honest, where where some of the things I was watching on the screen nearly brought me to tears. Most of it wasn't while well, I was acting going on, so to speak. It was literally what I could see taking place and what I could hear. Mm. Um, I thought the CGI, I think we're getting better and better at the way in which they integrate the CGI with, with everything. I think it, it, I think the uh, water we've said for years, Disney do water well. I think all the bit on the riverbed, uh, on the Riverbend song was was superb um, and it had a feel of Sleeping Beauty about it which felt very familiar to me and nice and I liked that and I was going to give it an 8 and then you mentioned about wonky noses and it made me remember about the wonky noses um, which kind of put my nose out of joint so I'm going to give it a 7 as well huh. very good Thank you. Uh, yeah I it's, it's competent but visually I found it all pretty dull right across the film um, so I'm going to give it a 7 as well so Music, Chris. Um, I would give it a ten, but uh, and then this and maybe I would change my mind if I watched again. But the beginning of Savages was a bit funny to me, um, and maybe it, it kind of got better. But that it's a sticking point for me. So that's I'm just knocking a point off because this something that wasn't quite there for me. But overall, I thought it was superb. So I'm going to give it a nine. A nine. Yeah. Nine. 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 Yeah. Um, again, I found it to be perfectly fine, but uh, nothing for me was particularly enjoyable except maybe Colours of the Wind, which I do really like. Um, I'll give it a seven. Solid seven. Mm-hmm. I cannot pick fault in it. Um, every single song, including the use of drums, percussions in the score, the way that they're able to change stylistically from one group of people to another, um, I can give it nothing lower than a 10. I'd forgotten about the drums in that number, actually. That was very good. Mm. Oh, no, I'm not going to up it, but I'd, I'd forgotten about that. It was very good. What about the kids? We just watched Pocahontas. So the story of Pocahontas is about there's people going to the place where Pocahontas lives. They drink beer and on the boat and how they drink it is they get a barrel and then they put a hole in it because um, there's lots of 
be in in it, and then I'll it pours out. So they just scoop it into the cups, and they're trying to conquer it, which means they're trying to take over it. And in the olden days, you look for gold with balls, digged it into a lake, and then shoveled it to see if they find gold nuggets. But they have a big fight, and Pocahontas meets John Smith, and they do secret things to make sure no one's watching them because they're trying to fight against each other. Well, Pocahontas likes to fo- follow wherever the wind takes her. And at the end, the boss of all the people tried to shoot Pocahontas's father, but it actually shot John Smith. And then they went back to their home where they came from and tied up the man who was really mean. At the end, Pocahontas watched the boat just going and going and going. And then they lived in peace. The end. My favourite bit was the part where Pocahontas just watched the boat going and going and going. It's funny. My favourite part was when, right at the start, when they were like getting ready to go to where Pocahontas lived and my favourite song was Just Around the River Bend. My favourite song was Can You Paint With All the Colours of the Wind? Can you paint with all the colours of the mountain? My favourite character is Pocahontas's friend little like bird thing. And... My favourite character was the raccoon because Pocahontas has a little raccoon and it's really funny and and it steals some of the dog's food. I would give it a three out of five. I would give it a four out of five. It was pretty good. Cool. Then press your stop button to stop it recording. Which one? Three. Four. Lucas really enjoyed it. You didn't you didn't think you'd be able to get him to watch it, did you? It was a struggle, but what 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 I said to them both today was what we're gonna do is now on a Sunday we're gonna sit down and watch a film every week. Um and we'll make a bit of a thing of it so they'll get used to it. At least until birthday parties and stuff start up again. And we never yeah. have weekend days free anymore. So mm. that gives us a score of sixty nine. Oh, 69, dude. Same as the Haunted Mansion. Oh, you guys were just too soft on that. Too more than fun and fancy free. Oh, dear. I don't think it was the Oscar contender they uh, intended it to be, really. Mm. No, the Renaissance has hit a bit of a blip, hasn't it? (laughs) We've, uh, We've got the IMDb score on the nose, though, 67. Yeah. So, Hugh, what about the cry factor? <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. I really loves it. I don't know why they just can't be together. <laughs> Hugh's cry factor. Well, 
I did get a bit choked up in Colours of the Wind because Bonnie told us that she was feeling better having taken some medicine. Um, <laughs> but I don't think that really counts. No. The music was playing and she said something nice. Um, <laughs> but I must admit, when she runs up the hill to watch the boat leave, as fake as it all is, and with the music swelling, I think it's a three. That and- sounds like this. He smells her wind from about half a mile away on that bit. He does. <laughs> it blows over him and he goes... Gives it a right sniff. Yeah. But what colour does it smell? <laughs> That's an interesting thought. Best bits, best bits. Uh, I liked the bit at the end of Savages where the clouds merge. Mm. I like... I often forget to sort of <laughs> note my best bits, so I've been dying to talk about this. There's a bit where Miko's giving a biscuit... And he eats it, and then he rubs his nose with both his paws like this, and some crumbs fall on the floor, and so oh, he, yeah. he licks his finger, and he yeah, picks yeah. up the last few, and I just love that little I bit. I liked that. So I, I wrote two down um, to say that I didn't like the uh, um, the psychics. They both, they both kind of involve that. One of them's when um, the willow tells all the all the creatures to be quiet, and the frog jumps off the lily pad and hides underneath it, and then like peers up with his little eyes peeking through. Mm. <laughs> Um, and then the other bit was when uh, Pocahontas says, my, my name's Pocahontas, and uh, Flick and the raccoon um, give this kind of Muppet-like reaction to her, and they kind of just look all agog. Like, you can't see what I'm doing, but but they look like the Muppets, and I thought it was quite funny because of that. Not particularly because it added anything to the film. It just made me go, ooh, that's like the Muppets. For the listeners at home, Chris just looked agog. Thank you. <laughs> Just like so I said. So they know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. Right. Wow, yeah. complete silence. You can find so us. next week. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can find us at 37 Disney Street, you were going to say, didn't you? But I was. Uh, again, I, we asked for feedback on uh, Pocahontas and we... <laughs> We had nothing. Maybe we shouldn't mention this next time because it doesn't, doesn't make us look good, does it? No, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Although, to be fair... We're going to give people a few hours to talk about it. I think maybe sun- the middle of Sunday afternoon is a bad time to get reactions because sometimes people have a lot to say. Maybe we'll and tweet yeah. earlier next next week. Yeah. Like yeah, on we Thursday always kind or of do it last minute on a Sunday going, oh, I'm filming tonight, recording tonight. I've got a plug. Hugh and I are planning a trip to Disneyland Paris <sighs> for the reopening after the COVID closure. Um, we do have a Disneyland Paris podcast. We also have a YouTube channel. And we the will, Disneyland Paris show. We mm. will be doing pre-trip reports on the Disneyland Paris show and post-trip reports on the Disneyland Paris show and talking about all things Disneyland Paris reopening over the coming weeks. So if you're at all interested in what it might look like in a Disney park, um, post-COVID, face masks, um, limited capacities social distancing, etc. Tune in, because we are going to be able to give you first-hand reports. If we go. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear, that sounded a bit negative. They've started a reservation system and it hasn't opened yet. So we've booked our travel and our accommodation, but we need to make sure that we get park entry. Yeah. Always yep. screwed. Cool. And next week, as Hugh was about to say, it actually is Hunchback of Notre Dame, unlike... This week, which last week I said it was going to be Hunchback of Notre Dame this week, but it isn't. It's yeah. next week. Yeah. yeah. Another one I'm not I'm not looking forward to this one. Mm. 
Hmm. But I will hmm. give it a fair crack of the whip. Yes. I will. Yes, absolutely. Good then. Anything else to say, chaps? Just just that I love you and I miss you. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's funny, this, isn't it? Up, up, up in the other wing of the uh, the house here at 37 Disney Street. Yeah. We, we should be able to come within a metre of each other soon, shouldn't we, so... Yeah, we can, like, nice. pass in the living room. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we should have a chat on the driveway or something. We can at least go and stand in our own garden, guys. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all our garden. Yeah. 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 Good. Right. Well, on that case, I'll, I'll draw things to a close then, shall I? Um, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Good night, children. <laughs>